It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. How did the Lakers put together their three-peat? What kind of teammate was Kobe Bryant? How crazy was the atmosphere around the Lakers 20 years ago? The only question left is, say with me, you win? Hey, sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. Today, I'm honored to have Jeff Perlman on the podcast. He's an author of nine books, most recently, Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Laker Dynasty. So, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. So, you know, the, the first thing I think that grabs me about your book and the writing style is how you can, you, you put us in the, the scene and you make us feel like you are there. And I'm kind of curious if you have insight into how you were able to do that so well. Oh, I mean, that's really nice of you. I, um, I mean, I try to interview everybody. Like, I try to interview everybody. I try to get a million different eyes on situations. So, um, if I'm writing about like the 97 playoffs and the game against Utah where Kobe shoots four air balls, I'm not just, yeah, I'm not just trying to get the perspective of the f- 10 guys on the court, I'm trying to get fans who are at the game. I'm trying to get people who are sitting on the bench. Like, one of the most valuable people for that, there was a Utah player named Stephen Howard who told me he was sitting on the bench and the one thing he kept thinking was Kobe, keep shooting, please keep shooting, please keep shooting. That's an amazing perspective. And it's only because I called a guy who wasn't, he wasn't even on the court. He was a deep reserve for Utah. So I just think, you know, I learned early in my career, they're always going to be better writers. Um, they're always going to be better writers, they're always going to be more talented people, but you can control how hard you work and how hard you go after it. And that means making the extra call and making the extra call. And I feel like if you do that enough, you talk to enough people where you get perspectives that haven't been heard before. For sure. Uh, I mean, you know, certainly it's like it just becomes riveting when certain uh, scenes unfold. Like even the very beginning of the book starts with a, like a, a tussle in a, on a bus with uh, Kobe. And I just found myself uh, like it just like it, w- it was very visual uh, and I and really captured that scene. I'm kind of curious. Did you have a favorite section of this book or a favorite story that jumped out at you that you really gravitated towards as you were writing it? Well, my favorite guy to write about was um, I had a player just for one year named J.R. Ryder. And uh, J.R. Ryder definitely had an erratic NBA career before he came to the Lakers, where he got in a lot of fights and suspended and drugs and all this stuff. And he comes to the Lakers. I just found him a bundle of joy, of weird joy. Like um, he uh, he missed three practices because his car broke down, but he only lived 300 yards from the practice facility. <laughs> I got to love that. One of my, it's little details like that that I just he, – uh, he missed a shoot-around because he overslept. And he showed up at the uh, – at the shoot around late with a note from the front desk clerk at the hotel saying, dear coach Jackson, uh, this is whatever Tim from the grand Hyatt. And, um, we forgot to give Jr. a wake up call. Please forgive his absence. And he hands it to Phil Jackson. Like I love stuff like that. I love characters. Like I love Dennis Rodman's brief time with Lakers. I love Cedric Ceballos thinking he's so good that he nicknamed himself Chice short for franchise when he was a Laker. Like, I, I mean, writing about Shaq and Kobe, obviously, that, that those narratives carry the book in a lot of ways. 
but the fringe guys are always my favorites. For sure. Now, was it clear? Obviously, you want to talk about the the three championship years. So, but was it clear as you began to figure out how to write this book that you needed to start several years before that? So, I'd written a book called Showtime about the '80s Lakers, and it ended very abruptly because that dynasty ended very abruptly because Magic had the HIV announcement in '91. And I always, when I started thinking about this book, I really felt like it'd be kind of cool in a way to think of it as a sequel where you're just jumping right back in and it's four years later and Magic is making this sort of ill-fated comeback attempt. And it just seemed like a really cool place, even if I didn't tell people it was a sequel. And certainly you don't have to read that book to, you know, read this book. But in my head, it was just this cool idea of like me knowing it's a sequel, but not telling anyone it's a sequel. So that's kind of why I started there. I just thought, it ended this way and starting this way. For sure. And I think a lot of people kind of almost have forgotten that chapter of magic coming back again then um, and, and having it be so tumultuous. You know, it's right, funny. Let's one thing about that. Yeah. It's so fascinating because at the time, I don't know how well you remember it. I mean, it was a huge deal when he came back. Like it was a huge deal. It was a cover of Sports Illustrated when that really mattered and everyone was talking about it and magic coming back because it wasn't just a legend coming back it was a legend coming back after being gone for four years it was a legend coming back after being gone for four years playing a different position there's a legend coming back after four years playing a different position and coming back from being hiv positive so it was an enormous story and it's amazing how few people remember that even happened considering the largeness of it all so i, I found that really fascinating how big it was but how it's been so obscured in history. For sure. Well, I mean, I think I think most of what your book is written about is why we don't remember that so much because so much happened immediately after that uh, yeah. that just really, um, you know, it, it makes sense. It's, it's interesting how you think about Phil uh, overseeing all of this tumultuousness and, and certainly the Shaq-Kobe dynamic and able to make that work. And um, I, I'm kind of wondering, do, do you think he made it work or was it simply just the talent was just too overwhelming for those three years for anyone to stop? Uh, I think it's both. I, I think, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, you can't go wrong when you have two of the five most talented players in the league on your team. Like, you know, that's pretty much a lock. You're going to at least make the playoffs and be a really good team. But I will say they didn't do it with Dell Harris. They didn't do it with Kurt Rambis briefly. Uh, Phil Jackson came in. And he had sort of a largeness to him and a, a gravitas to him. And, a, you know, I have these six rings that I won with Michael Jordan. I have these two more rings I won as a player with the Knicks. Like, I have done this. Um, and I think that mattered a lot. Like, a lot, a lot. I really do. I think it mattered. I remember I used to be a baseball writer at Sports Illustrated. And one year, the uh, this is a tangent, but it's important, like, uh, for this. The, the Florida Marlins had a manager named John Bowles. And the Marlins had a lot of talent. But John Bowles had never played Major League Baseball. In fact, I don't think he ever played Minor League Baseball. And the players didn't want to listen to him. Like, they just didn't want to listen to him. They just didn't care because they didn't trust his judgment. And I feel like when Phil Jackson came along, it's a 180 from that. It's this guy knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly how to get there. He has done it repeatedly. Let's listen to him. And I, I, I think in a way that goes behind when you gets obscured by all the Zen stuff and the candles and this and that and the triangle – just the fact that he commanded respect really mattered. You know, what's funny is I was going through some old stuff and, you know, getting into my old, you know, shed and whatever and putting things away. And I found I had written into the L.A. Times. Uh, I had moved here in 96, uh, you know, and I had was coaching a little bit, but not really in the basketball scene here and paying attention to the Lakers a little bit. 
And I found a letter I wrote to the LA Times that they printed about questioning how uh, Rodman would ever fit on this team, you yeah. know, and then referencing, you know, at one point when he first got to the Bulls, and obviously I grew up in Chicago and was at all the Bulls games, I can remember at a time he was about to go after a ref and you have like Scotty and probably Michael Dick tackling him to the floor mm-hmm. and then Phil just laughing on the bench and making it a joke, whereas most coaches would have probably just been, you know, freaking out. So I was try- I actually referenced that thing saying who on the Lakers would ever have that kind of effect on Rod and Rodman uh, and, and, you know, keep him in a position where he could be a, a good teammate and help them win. And so I feel like you capture that even in even more detail. Uh, you know, as far as that, like, would that ever going to work with Rodman or it just it completely fell apart in your mind? So I love that you're asking me about Rodman because I've done like so many of these interviews and I think like nobody asks about Rodman. He's such a fascinating little sliver mm-hmm. in 99 there. Um, it's funny. He had the experience. So, if you look at his career, he was really good under Chuck Daly. Then he goes to San Antonio. I think Bob Hill was his coach. Disaster. He goes to Chicago. Jackson. Perfect. He goes to Lakers. There's a Dell Harris is fired the same day Dennis Rodman is brought in. In fact, they have back-to-back press conferences. Dell Harris saying goodbye. And it's funny because Dell Harris, like the nicest human being ever, this devout Christian, doesn't swear. And Dennis Rodman on the same day, it's like saying goodbye to the angel and saying hello to the devil simultaneously. And Kurt Rambis is the interim coach. I mean, you're setting yourself up for disaster. And Kurt Rambis is a really nice guy and a really good coach, but like you're setting yourself up for disaster. One of the first things Rodman says when he meets Kurt Rambis is, I need some time to clear my head. I think I'm going to go to Vegas for a little bit. <laughs> and Kurt Rambis is like, what? Wait, what? And I mean, you're right. Like he, Phil Jackson was just perfect. And Rodman and Pippen, I mean, Rodman and Jordan were just perfect. And there was no one on the Lakers who was going to be like, listen, cut the crap. Like nobody, there's no one who's going to be able to do that. It wasn't O'Neal's personality. Kobe was way too young. Other guys, it just wasn't made to work. So he shows up and he basically becomes the Rodman of San Antonio again, where he's taking naps on the floor and he's showing up late and he's testing everyone. And I feel in hindsight, I felt bad for Rambis because it was just, he was set up to fail. That was set up to fail right there. Could not work. For sure, for sure. Um, well, let me ask you this because this book is not necessarily a like a sanctioned. John Black uh, of the Lakers did not sanction this book. Would not would not have approved probably a lot of the. You know, I would have written that book. Yeah, you know, it's like you know because some books are like that. They're just a celebration yeah. of a team, and this is I would have to say certainly not that. In fact. You you kind of the bus gets run over, uh, runs over quite a few people, backs up and hits them again, and I was fascinated by that because um, you know I, I I just wonder how um, how this is being taken by Lakers fans and that I, I don't know if you've even gotten a reaction yet from them. The book just kind of came out recently, but um, you know have you have you felt or were you even concerned while you're writing this that you're like man like you know Kobe fans are going to be be really upset about this? All right. So um, first, I just want to say like I never. Um I never set out, I really mean this, like I never set out to run anyone over. Like it's not, I don't, I don't think, hopefully you agree. I mean, I don't think someone would read this book and think this guy just went out of his way to do a hit job on the Lakers. Like that's not, that's not who I am at all. Zero percent is not who I am. I'm not, I'm not seeking out to ruin people, destroy people. I just want to write an honest and accurate retelling of a period. And if these people are all the best people ever, great. And if they're the worst, great. Like it doesn't matter. It's just, I'm here to retell the story. Um, I was really nervous. Kobe died. I was genuinely devastated and crushed and sad. Then I started thinking, I don't know how this is going to play, you know, like, because the book, 
It's from 96 to 04. And Kobe was kind of a pain in the ass, you know, and Kobe was difficult and Kobe went through a lot. Eagle Colorado is a big part of this book. And I, I'm not, I'm like you, I'm a New Yorker. You're from Chicago. I moved here. I'm not a native. I didn't grow up a Laker fan. I was definitely worried about how this would go over. And I have to say to my amazing shock, um, I have received two negative tweets and that's it. That's it. And what's funny, interesting, you're from Chicago. I wrote Walter Payton's biography about a decade ago. And Sports Illustrated ran an excerpt from the book about three weeks before the book came out. Um, and the excerpt was about his infidelities, depression at the end of his life, some painkiller abuse. And the backlash was fierce, like fierce, fierce, like fierce to the point where my publisher actually would not send me to Chicago for already scheduled, previously scheduled PR dates because they thought I was going to get my head bashed in. Wow. Right. It was terrifying. It was really disappointing. And I was worried about this. And the one thing I've learned that I think is very interesting about Kobe Bryant, the difference between Walter Payton and Kobe Bryant, um, Walter Payton was considered flawless by Bears fans and in Chicago. Oh, yeah. Much more so than Michael Jordan. You know, like. Oh, that's Michael interesting. Um, like people knew. It's not to say Walter Payton was held in higher esteem than Jordan. What I'm saying is people knew that Jordan could be a pain in the ass. There were a lot of rumors about Jordan and his wife and what was going on there. Walter Payton, it was his Walter, Connie, his kids. He's the best. He's awesome. He's sweetness. He's this charitable guy. All true, by the way. So he was held on this very high thing. And I didn't write that. Again, I didn't write the book to chop Walter Payton down. Walter Payton was a hero of mine. I just wanted to write his biography. And some of the things you find out writing a biography are kind of grim. Kobe Bryant, for good or for bad, there's nothing I wrote that's overly shocking to people who know the Lakers well. Like, people knew Walter uh, Kobe Ryan was a pain in the ass. Like, they knew he was difficult. They knew that Shaq Kobe thing was there. And they certainly knew about Eagle Colorado. So, to me, the, the thing I needed to get out a lot was, look, I wrote this book before he died. Just to be clear, this is not me coming along and saying, quick, let's put together a Kobe Bryant book. And that's not what this is. Right. I feel like I got ahead of that. And the reaction has been fair, I think. For sure. I mean, you know, it's funny because, like, like full disclosure... I'm a triangle offense coach. Uh, Tex Winter was a mentor of mine. I spent lots of time with him. And I can actually remember uh, having a discussion about Kobe in the midst of this. Probably, it might have been like right after, or uh, probably 04, around there. Uh, and, and like, we, he'd do this fun game where it's like, okay, who's your top five shooting guards in the league? And I'm like, Tex, I don't think I can put Kobe. I mean, this is crazy because I, I was young, I, you know, whatever. But yeah. I never liked the way Kobe played. And I think anybody who recognized the triangle and how well that worked would well, certainly not like the way Kobe played in that either. Did you ever come across, you know, I have this memory in the, probably around um, the, around the rape trial, all that stuff going on. It, maybe it was during the, the playoffs of that year. Um, I think it was Jim Gray. They asked him, or maybe it was, was it like Hannah Storm or somebody else? Maybe it was a female reporter. They said, you know, if you could win three straight championships um, running the triangle or four straight champions running the triangle, would you do that? And he said, no. Did you ever come across anything like that in an interview? I don't remember that interview, actually. Because I, I can't find it, whatever. I know I saw it, and I, it just like ripped my he heart out. Triangle. What's he that? He hated the triangle. He, Kobe Bryant hated the triangle. Yeah. He hated so, the triangle. I actually think, you know what's interesting? I feel like, okay, I've, I've promoted this book nonstop, right? If we want to have an honest discussion about Kobe, right? Like, as a basketball player, you may disagree. Like, People overlook a lot. Like, people do overlook a lot about Kobe Bryant. And Kobe Bryant, 
people are like, was it harder for Phil Jackson coaching the Bulls or the Lakers? To me, easily the Lakers. Because with the Bulls, the pecking order was always obvious. Mm-hmm. Jordan was number one. Pippen was number two. Pippen was never trying to be Jordan, ever. He was never trying to be better than Jordan. He wasn't. There was never. Pip, Scottie Pippen never thought he was better than Michael Jordan and deserved the final shot over Jordan. Kobe Bryant thought he deserved the final shot. Like, he thought he deserved the final shot. He had the most dominant big man in the game, the most dominant player in the game, and he still thought he deserved that shot. And if you look at Kobe's resume, again, great player, obviously an all-time top 10 NBA, NBA player. There are a lot of 7-for-28 shooting nights from Kobe Bryant, and a lot of, especially when he would go up against Vince Carter or Tracy McGrady or Allen Iverson, where teammates were like, oh, here we go. And it was him just going one-on-one, abandoning everything, timeout, Shaq's in the huddle, Kobe, what the hell are you doing? Yo, just get your fat ass under the, you know, like, there were, he was not a perfect, when people die young, understandably, we, we do this thing, but he was not a perfect NBA player. You know, he could be a real pain in the ass and real difficult. Yeah, I, I listen, and, and it, it's a, it's an absolute tragedy, and he deserves to to be elevated, you know, mm-hmm. for all of his accomplishments on the court, without question. Um, but I mean, yeah, we we you heard a lot about this stuff, and and you know, you it's very well researched, and it's very you know, I, I, it's not like I want to say, oh, you have some agenda against Kobe. It's it seems like we're just presenting, you know, with a lot of research who he was, and I think that helps. You know, the one thing I also remember, I don't, and I don't think I saw it in the book. Uh, there was a notion that his okay, you do you do cover really well of how the uh, when he got married, his parents just you know set, just didn't want yeah. to talk to him anymore, right? That's that's safe to say, right? Yeah. And so, oh, yeah, 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 I didn't know if that was a question. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. So, but so, but then as I remember it, just before he goes to Eagleton and get the surgery and all that stuff, I, as I remember it, his parents actually reconciled with him, and he had a kid or two, whatever, and they they finally became his family again. I don't think that that was described in the book, was it? Not in great detail Um, because it's kind of murky, actually. Like, it's not as clear because they never got along with Vanessa at all. Like, that was always a really bad relationship. And I think um, I think that stood in way in the way of full, complete reconciliation. I mean, they were mad at him for not signing a prenup. Right. They're mad at him for marrying this girl who was at the time. I say girl because she was a girl. She was, you know, super. I mean, he was showing up at our high school, which sounds creepy. It's not creepy. He was 21 and she's 18, you know, but like he's showing up at our high school. She comes from nothing financially, which means nothing but to the family did, you know, um, they didn't go to the wedding. He invited no teammates to the wedding. It's the craziest thing ever. Um, it's a sad, like there was never full. And then this is, I mean, recently you saw Vanessa's mother comes out and the whole thing is freaking thing. Yeah. Kind of off topic. The thing that sucks, like to me sucks is like, it really seemed like he was entering the good part of his life. Yeah. You know, like where he actually had self-awareness and there's something beautiful when a guy realizes scoring 38 against Milwaukee isn't the most important thing. You know, like when you're like, oh, there's my daughter. I'm so proud of my kid. Or, oh, I just won an Academy Award. Can you believe this? Like, it seemed like he was a much more enjoyable, enlightened uh, and embraceable person. Yeah. Well, you know, what's funny is, is the way you describe him and, and trace him all the way through from high school into the pros was, you know, it, it almost is sympathetic in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it kind of feels like to me, especially with, you know, how we spend so much time with kids now and analyzing and, and uh, you know, labeling and all these things. It, it kind of does feel like he probably was misdiagnosed with something, 
you know, personality-wise. There seemed to be something a little bit off the way, certainly a way I'm, I'm reading this and, and now processing it in 2020 versus 2000. Um, and, you know, I mean, I don't know if that's really the case because, you know, he obviously was trying to follow in the footsteps of Michael Jordan, right? And I think yep. he had read, he must have read, oh, well, Michael was really hard on his teammates. And he sort of was trying to play that part a lot more than he was. Is that, does that sound fair in terms of how you described him? Well, I always think of something. You did, I, I really think this is an important Kobe Bryant thing. Okay. When I was 15, I got my first job. J.B. Danigan's in the Jefferson Valley Mall. I was a dishwasher. <laughs> I lasted an hour and a half before I walked out and quit. Okay. Uh, around that same time, I had my first car accident, a fender bender. Around that same time, I asked Michelle Sheehan to the mail pack prom, and she said no, right? She rejected me, right? All those moments you have in life, those moments are insanely important. They're all insanely important. Like, you need to get a D on a test and feel like crap. You need to ask someone to the prom and get rejected. You need to have a little car accident. You need all those things. You don't know it at the time, but you really do. They build something in you, and we all need those. When you don't have those, you're missing something. Like you actually are missing something. And I feel like Kobe Bryant was actually missing something. I'm not, I don't know if he was necessarily ADD or Asper. I don't, I'm not saying that. I just think he was missing developmental steps that you have, that I have, that most of us have. And when you show it, when you, you show it, you live in Italy and you're one of the few black faces and you're living in this foreign country. Then you come to Lower Marion and you're the superstar and you're the son of a former Sixer. And you announce you're going, you have a shoe deal at 17, you hold a press conference, Boys to men are at your press conference. You're eight, 17 years old. You show up to your first Laker training camp. You say to the other players, my name's Kobe Bryant. No one here is going to punk me. You're mad at your coach who's been doing this for three decades that he's not playing you more. Like, you do not have the proper developmental steps and something is missing. And I just think he didn't really catch up until much later in life. And um, I think, like, uh, even in a weird way, the awkwardness of Eagle Colorado if you read the tra- if you read that chapter and you read the transcript of what he did, it's not a cocksure athlete. It's a confused, awkward, you know, off balance, like scared kid who didn't have the wherewithal to say, I need my attorney or yeah. didn't have the wherewithal to say, maybe she's coming back to my room and maybe this is actually about it. Like, you know what I mean? Like you just, so all those things like him trying to be Jordan, him trying to be Iverson, him trying to be Will Smith, him like, his life was during those years I'm writing about was just this guy eternally wearing a different mask. And it's sad. I agree with you. It's actually, it, I don't, I didn't think of it as mean to write about it. I thought it was kind of, I, I felt sympathy for the guy because yeah. I thought he missed some important moments in life. For he sure. went to the prom with Brandy. Yeah. <laughs> somebody he'd never met before, you know, yeah. and people magazine is covering his prom. I mean, it's, that's not normal. Right. And then, you know, even like the, like the, 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 the hazing of rookies and certain things like that, which, I just don't know how authentic it really was or if he was just sort of trying to play a part. And then because he didn't, it wasn't authentic, it would come off even worse. And I think that's sort of the gist of what I got from his teammates. They never really believed in this, in the way he behaved was really the way he was. And I think you started even to discuss it at how he started to change his image after the after uh, Eagle Colorado incident, whatever we're going to call it. Uh, it seemed like he changed his image to try and, you know, fit into a different culture there. And I don't think anyone ever bought that either. It's so fascinating. Like, um, I see it. So I have two kids in high school, right? And you can see it sometimes with kids where you can recognize, like my kids' friends or kids at school, um, you can recognize inauthenticity very quickly as in, from at this point in life, you know, in your 40s. You see some kid being like, yo, what's up, dog? And you're like, okay, you're a suburban kid and so-and-so. Like, right. you're working. Like, you're working too hard. And I feel like a lot of the teammates, they would watch Kobe 
and their thought is you're just working too hard. Like you're from Lower Marion, Pennsylvania, you mm -hmm. know, like you're a very polite, you know, yes, sir. No, ma'am. How are you? It's nice to meet you. Like that's kind of how you were raised. And when all of a sudden you're like, you know, dropping F-bombs left and right. And like, it just didn't, it just came off like a fake mink, uh, mink coat. You know, it just didn't seem real. So he definitely struggled with the authenticity. And it's sad though. It's not like, it's not mean to say, it's just like, it's kind of sad. It's this guy who just mm -hmm. needed something that he didn't have at that point. Well, you know, I think the, ironically college, right? College is where you go wow. uh, and get some of that experience. Even if it's for, for a year or two years or something, you tend to, that that's where you, you show up and, it, you know, try to be somebody and then you find out who you are and all those things. And so I feel like, yeah, he probably missed out on that as well, which uh, would have helped. Now that said, there's been plenty of guys who have jumped uh, from high school that, you know, aren't, aren't, didn't have those issues necessarily, but, um, but you know, but we could, let's pivot this back to basketball just because. Can I say one know, thing about that oh, yeah. real quick? Yeah. I just want to make one point. Well, two things. Number one, he used to go to UCLA and sit on campus when he was young just to kind of feel that vibe. And number two, you know, I've been covering sports for a long time. The NBA has always been my favorite to cover because I feel like number one, the guys are the most worldly. And number two, almost all of them have had a taste of college. And like, even I agree with you, like, I am not a fan of like the NBA forcing kids to go to college. Like a kid who's like growing up in the projects of Gary, Indiana, and he can make $10 million a year or 20 million should not have to go to like, that's mm -hmm. crap. Right. But you definitely see the impact of being in sort of a new world and going to classes and living in a dorm. I don't know. Like it definitely. Oh yeah. Well, you know, that reminds me of a, uh, in my sports illustrated reading days, uh, back when I actually got the magazine in my hands. No, maybe it was your article. I don't even know. Somebody had quoted Dave Winfield saying that where he had gone to Minnesota with, with and played mm -hmm. basketball with, uh, Kevin McHale. But then when he got to the majors, he's like, you know, no one here went to college. At least you're going to, you're on teams with all these college guys. You can, you know, have a relationship with these guys and they're, they, you know, they've had a different experience. So for yep. sure, yeah, and that still exists. And I think the other thing about the NBA even today is that they've, like, you don't really have the knuckleheads as much anymore, right? You don't have J.R. Riders very much. You don't have a lot of the, or like Rasheed Wallace kind of guys. I think, you know, the, the, I think the players as they were younger, like, saw that 10, 20, 15 years ago and realized, you know, that's not going to be the way that you're going to make the NBA now. I, I, that's my you know, a theory, unless yeah. you're going to tell me, wait a minute, what about these guys? But I, you know what I mean? I don't feel like we have that same kind of uh, behavior anymore, which is good, right? I mean, although, you know, Rodman was another guy who was uh, completely mesmerizing and, and brought interest to the game. Perhaps that's why they're suffering a little bit on the, uh, on the ratings. Well, I think they're suffering on the ratings because we're in the weirdest year ever. Okay. You know, I just think this is such a strange year. Um, I think the one thing about now is just um, – you see with the NBA as a whole, like it's all image, 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 image control, image control. Everyone has a handler. Everyone has a publicist. Everyone has an agent who hyper manages things. And I just think I don't like it. Like I miss the J.R. Riders and Dennis Rodman's of the league. I like the outcasts. And uh, you're right. I mean, I was like, as you were saying that, I was trying to think of someone to disprove your theory. I couldn't really come up with anyone. The last guy I thought of was Birdman. Yeah. You know? And and by the way, tame to compared to what we saw, yeah. you know, yeah, There's a lot of cats, you know, like, um, yeah, you're right, you're actually right. It's a different, it's kind yeah. of a bummer. Say what you want about those guys; they were fun. 
Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and, and the reason why I had that sense is because like I interview a lot of these guys now and it's like it's always the most easy, pleasurable experience where they're just smart and they are they're trained to do this. They know how to speak to the media, you know, all those different things. And I say I have to sense that, you know, in the earlier generations they didn't have that kind of control. Um, and, and, you know, there's obviously effects. We don't know, you know, if it makes it better or makes it worse, but it's certainly, you know, we, we're lacking some of those interesting stories. We don't have another Cedric Sabalos, you know, taking a, you know, a weekend off to go water skiing, um, and, and, you know, <laughs> and getting caught all that kind of stuff. Although I, I guess, take, yeah, I would take a J.R. Ryder over a prepackaged programmed, you know, you got to be careful what you say make sure like I would take a J.R. Ryder any day of the week and risk him, you know, telling me to go F myself. Like I would take that because I enjoy those characters more. Sure. Now as from a coaching perspective, obviously, you know, yeah, no, no, thank you. But, yeah. um, you know, cause especially at that level, uh, you know, I think sometimes maybe as in high school or whatever, we can reach this guy, we can help him change, but like, you know, I don't know how much that happens, you know, and that's why a guy like Phil Jackson was so, so genius in his ability to like handle a guy like Rodman. But um, you know, I, I was looking really forward and to, to diving in and reading your article, your, your chapter about Phil. So, what do you have? Like, give us a detail about in the book that you describe with Phil that you feel like uh, encapsulates why he was, you know, a Hall of Fame coach. Oh man, I mean, what I think he did really well is um, a couple of things. First of all, I just want to say I spent eight hours with the guy, which is the best. I actually, flew oh out wow, wow. Yeah, I got eight hours of Phil Jackson. It was, uh, yeah, it was great. It was great. And, Did you go uh, to Montana? It, or where? I went to Montana. So basically, uh, Jeannie Buss, the owner of the Lakers, who I know a little bit, gave, uh, hooked me up email with him. And he said, um, well, when do you want to talk? And he meant by phone. And I was like, can I come out? He said, yeah, all right. And I met him, a co- uh, met him at a coffee shop. And we sat down and I was like, I just I want to thank you for doing this. And the first thing he says is, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for Jeannie. And I thought, <laughs> well, this isn't going to last. And then um, he's like, why don't we drive around uh, Flathead Lake and we drive around this lake? He's like, I thought we could you want to go back to my house. We stopped for lunch. And he's like, you want to go back to my house? Sitting on a patio on the porch, rocking chairs, you know. He's like, I'm going to take a nap. You want to go get dinner later? I was like, yeah, great. It was like um, it's like I won the like $100,000 spend a day with Phil Jackson prize. It was wow. great. He's really interesting, unique guy. I think there are a few things about him that I, I find really fascinating. Number one. He didn't give a shit, a, a crap about being part of the coaching fraternity. He didn't care. He didn't need to be buddies with Larry Brown and Greg Popovich. Like, it didn't matter to him. He didn't need to be chitty chatty with these guys. He didn't need to play golf junkets afterwards. Like, he didn't want it, you know? He didn't want it. And I think part of it, I don't know if he'd agree with this. I think he kind of, I mean, he definitely has a little arrogance to him. Uh, definitely as a coach. I think he viewed himself on a little higher plane to a certain degree. Maybe a deeper thinker. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I don't know. But I, he definitely felt that way. I think as a coach, what he did really well, and I think if you look at the Lakers, the Shaq Kobe era, the, uh, the two his two predecessors didn't do that well, is he just took steps back a lot. Like, Del Harris definitely um, micromanaged too much. And one thing Del Harris is he talked too much. He would just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, and the players couldn't take it anymore. And Kurt Rambis comes in, and Kurt Rambis babies Kobe Bryant. He's a babies Kobe Bryant, and I'm going to protect and cocoon Kobe Bryant. And that rubbed a lot of players really the wrong way. Phil Jackson comes in. He's like, look, I have these veterans. I got Rick Fox here. I have Robert Ory here. I'm going to have Horace Grant here. I'm going to have Brian Shaw here. Like, 
it's your locker room, man. It's your locker room. You guys manage this. If it's really bad, I'll come in. And if you need me, I'll, I'll do it. But this isn't my thing. You know, like I don't need to be a babysitter. I didn't sign up to be a babysitter. It sounds so simple, but so many coaches feel the need to be babysitters mm-hmm. and to put their thumbprint on everything and everybody. And he really didn't. And I just think it's one of the, and the other thing he did that he doesn't get enough credit for, people talk about the triangle offense and he would probably agree. I think too often they give him credit for the triangle offense. And really what he did was allow Tex Winter to be Tex Winter and coach his offense. And it wasn't like Phil Jackson was trying to take credit for the triangle. You'll never see him say like my triangle. He was very gracious about Tex, 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 Tex. Um, and I just think like it takes sort of in that world of huge egos and headlines and interviews, it takes something to not to be able to say, look, this is his. I'm the coach, but he's running this. This is all about Tex Winter. I just think he was really good at that kind of thing, being a better Mike, you know, distributor of assignments and tasks and leaving people alone to work it out and not feeling like every time Shaq and Kobe had a fight, he had to step in and be a babysitter. You know, mm-hmm. it was very impressive. Yeah. I, you know, in his books, he's talked a lot about like the pack and how there's nothing like uh, just being thrown out of the pack to make somebody want to come back. And oh, so it's almost like great, you ignore yeah. them, right? And they're going to want to come back. And I think, yeah, you know, it's funny because, you know, the, the Phil has that reputation, like this naturally he understood how to do that. But um, when we talk to coaches now and try and help them, these are all techniques that you can learn, I think, uh, that don't need to be a thing. Oh, I, I'm not that kind of coach. Oh, I think you can learn to do that, like doctors learn bedside manner. And uh, but certainly Phil has laid a good uh, groundwork for that. And, you know, unfortunately for him, he's sort of taken a big hit with the, his experience in New York. And I feel like it's tarnished his coaching a little bit, too, in some weird way, especially with also the way the triangle has now, you know, kind of been stamped out um, of, of the uh, of the lexicon now, which is also, you know, really troubling. But don't you think I kind of feel like that's the way like that's kind of the way of sports, you know, like um, when I went to college, I went to University of Delaware. They ran the wing T offense. Everyone loved the wing T offense. It was the Delaware wing T offense in football. Well, that thing's dead. You know, like nobody doesn't wing T anymore. It's just we move on. You know, the I formation in the NFL, you'll never see a straight I formation. Which we move on. We do different things. And I just think the triangle, you know, it had its time. It was a genius offense. Um, and then people kind of, you know, move on. I do think one thing that's interesting, like I write a lot in a book about or a decent amount about John Calipari because he decided not to draft Kobe Bryant with the Nets. And I think Calipari is a perfect NBA example of the opposite of Phil Jackson. Players couldn't stand playing for him because all he thought he needed to do was give pep talks nonstop, get on players nonstop, ride you, ride you, ride you. And like the reason he was a bad NBA coach is because he didn't understand. Like these are professionals. They don't want you riding them all the time. And Phil Jackson from a very early time in his Bulls career realized the best way to coach is by being a little hands off. For sure. Well, you know, the other thing that's interesting is that you you, you describe the uh, the 2004 season when they bring in Gary Payton and Carl Malone, and I can remember going to those games. And as a triangle guy, I was like, it was always so frustrating to me to watch Gary Payton out yeah. there. And you know, I got in serious trouble on Twitter when he got nominated and then ultimately into the Hall of Fame because you know, in the 90s, it was hard. You know, in Chicago, you couldn't really see West Coast basketball much. You know, it might be on every so often. So my experience with really was experience was watching Gary Payton in those finals in the 95 in the 96 finals. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know, is he really a Hall of Fame guard? <laughs> and boy, did that not go over well. 
Um, and you actually describe, like, you know, when you see in, the, in one sentence his accomplishments, the way you describe it, it's like, oh, okay, I mean, I get it now, all the all NBA teams and all, all defense. The problem for me was like, you know, okay, there's a lot of guards like that, really tough-minded, really good defenders, didn't shoot really well, you know, he passed fine, you know, I, I don't know. It's like there's a lot of those kind of guys who aren't in the Hall of Fame, but what what was your takeaway from that? Because it seems like you, you had a, it was a really a juicy section of the book uh, that you enjoyed writing. It's funny, I got in a similar uh, situation when I said, I don't think Carmelo Anthony's a Hall of Famer, um, where people are like, how can you say that? Blah, blah. I'm like, because he doesn't win and he doesn't make teams better. You know, he just scores a lot of points. It's like the Dave Kingman of... Uh, but yeah, hey, hey, no. hey, hey, wait a minute. You can't, that's a Cubs hero. Can't, that's... <laughs> Mets, Mets, Dave Kingman. Oh, the Mets version? Okay. Well, listen, Dave Kingman, the Cubs didn't win either, but hey. <laughs> I like the Mets, Dave Kingman, when he struck out a lot and hit a lot of home runs, as opposed to the Cubs, uh, Dave Kingman, where he struck out a lot and hit a lot of home runs. I'm yeah, exactly. About All right, there's, okay. Um, <laughs> I, I think Payton's a Hall of Famer, but I think um, the thing that gets overlooked, he was just a pain in the ass. Like, he was not... I, I had a fascinating interview with Jelani McCoy. Right in San Diego, we met at a coffee shop, and he played with Payton a lot with Seattle. And I'd always heard the rumor always was that Gary Payton ruined Vin Baker, you know, that he just destroyed Vin Baker when the when the Sonics made that trade with Milwaukee and Vin Baker arrived. That Gary Payton just ruined him. And I talked to Vin Baker, and he he said that's not really accurate. But um, Gary Payton was just a freaking pain in the ass, and he was mean and dismissive and rude and arrogant and. He was almost covered in a way where it was jovial. You know, ah, Gary Payton, he's so, look at the trash talk, ha, 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 ha. But, like, it's not that funny when someone's making fun of, like, your wife or your girlfriend or your kid who has a disability, you know, whatever it is. Like, so, you know, him coming to the Lakers, it was a Jim Buss. That was Jim Buss actually wanted Gary Payton. Uh, Phil did not want him. Uh, Derek Harper, Derek Fisher was a far better triangle point guard than Gary Payton. I mean, it was stupid signing in a lot of ways he wasn't um Peyton wasn't a bad Laker as far as being a jerk I think he was not being the main man anymore sort of reduced him a little bit but he was a crappy fit it's amazing that team nearly won the NBA title considering how dysfunctional everything was that year it's almost like people say wow they really got upset I'm like upset in hindsight the upset is they made the NBA finals like there, there was nothing nothing on that season that really went well for sure. I mean, you know, the thing with Gary was he just wouldn't move. He'd, he'd maybe get the ball, and if he passed it, he wouldn't move. And you know he must have – they've instructed him. They told him, like, you have to go there when you pass here. That's, I mean, listen, the triangle can be wrote until you get used to it, and then you can find other ways to break out of it like Michael did. But, um, you know, it just was like – it just gummed up the works, and it really becomes painfully obvious when you don't want to exist in it, how it just everything can fall apart when one player doesn't want to actually do it. Um, and I, I can remember going to these games and, and sitting there and like my father-in-law had like these great seats like behind the bench and I'd be watching. I, I got to go like maybe two or three games and just seeing it from that perspective, it was just like up close. Um, just it, how, yeah, how bad of a fit it was. Now, the thing that's interesting about you mentioned, you know, they made the finals. It's like they probably would have won the finals had uh, Karl Malone not gotten his knee injured. I don't agree. You don't? I don't actually. I don't know. I mean, I. I look at I look at you may we you're a coach I'm not a coach you uh, you certainly know more about coach than I do um, by far I look at that Detroit team in hindsight and I think it's, they're really good and really well coached and if you look at them and the way they played those Lakers they were sort of perfectly designed and they had a lot of long pesky defensive types 
I mean, I think specifically, you know, Richard Hamilton and Tayshawn Prince is he's sort of, I mean, they just, everyone's like, oh, they're the worst team to ever win a title because they had no Hall of Famers. In some ways, I think that makes them the best team to ever win a title because they were just so ridiculously cohesive. And mm-hmm. it was Larry Brown's best coaching job. I mean, the job he did with Iverson and the Sixers was pretty amazing. But like, you know, they were undersized in a lot of ways, like Ben Wallace and Rasheed Wallace. They weren't, you know, but they just, if you look at the job they did against Indiana in the Eastern Finals that year, Indiana scored like 68 points in those games. I guess the deal they did was just ridiculous. So I don't know. I, do they win with Malone? Kareem Rush was like, I know we won with Malone. That's what I <laughs> He's like, yeah, we win. But, you know, teams always say that. I don't know. I think Detroit was just ready for that team in a major way. Uh, you know, and, no, and I, I – Yeah, and by the way, part of that conversation with Tex when we, to wrap this – to bring this all the way back around would be – like I remember Rip Hamilton was like the top – my number one shooting guard at that era at that time because of what like, – like you say, the way they played and the way they got him open and how it opened up everything else. So you're right. Capital T, the best capital T team uh, to win a title was, you know, could be that or Portland in 77 because of no star- superstars. So, uh, yeah, I, I hear you. I just feel like, you know, you have a team that gets to the, comp- the NBA Finals and you lose a starter. You know, that's tough to overcome in the midst of that. Because correct me if I'm wrong, he, he made it. He was healthy until the Finals, right? Yeah. Come alone. The funny thing is, I would say this, like, it's like, ah, uh, if only, right? He was 40 years old. So I'm just <laughs> saying, like, when you sign a 40-year-old forward and you play him serious minutes, and I know, like, the injury technically didn't have to do with age, but um, you are rolling the dice a little bit. You know, when you have a, you're depending on a 40 year old guy to stay healthy, and you're like, well, he's always been healthy. Yeah, but he hasn't always been 40. You know, absolutely, absolutely. So, well, you know, what? Any other, uh, f- uh, other, you know, stories that pop up in your mind now that we've been talking a little bit about this, that you, that, about this, that you, uh, that are of note that you want to share? Uh, you know, to whet our appetite for getting the book and reading it. I mean, my favorite in a lot of ways is the, uh, the Nets bungling Kobe Bryant, like the '96 draft. To me, is first of all, it's one of the most fascinating drafts ever. Maybe the most fascinating draft ever. You just look at the players and the personalities. But you know, the Nets had the number eight pick in the draft, and um, they were taking Kobe Bryant. Like it was a, a lock. They were taking Kobe Bryant. John Calipari was a new coach. John Nash was the general manager. They worked Kobe out four or five times. They absolutely loved him. Um, they told ownership they were going to take Kobe. Ownership not that happy about it. High school kid. They're like, nice. Nah, this guy's different. They call Kobe's parents because he's only 17. They're like, we're going to take your son. Um, I think I actually just turned 18. But we're going to take your son. That's great. It's right up the turnpike. This is awesome. Um, they co- Kobe has his deal with Adidas, though. Kobe already had a deal with Adidas. Adidas really wants him in L.A. Kobe's, um, Kobe's agent does not want him playing for the Nets, small market team. So the day before the draft, Kobe calls John Calipari. And says, Coach, I uh, I decide I don't want to be I don't want to be near my parents, so I'd appreciate if you guys don't draft me. And Calipari goes into John Nash, the GM's office, and is like, John, he doesn't want to play for us. And John Nash is like, it's just a bluff. Don't worry about it. It's just a bluff. Um, and Jerry West had called the Nets, seeking a trade of, of the pick. So John Nash knew something was up. John, uh, the Nets, Jerry West had actually offered the Nets before he made the deal with Charlotte. He offered the Nets Vladi Divac for the eight pick, and the Nets wouldn't give it up. Then. Um, Kobe's agent calls and says, um, calls Calipari and says, if you draft Kobe, he's probably going to go to Italy for the year. Calipari's like, oh my God, what are we doing? John Nash is like, they're bluffing, they're bluffing. Kerry Kittles is represented by David Falk. Day before the draft, David Falk calls John Calipari and says, listen, 
Kerry really wants to play for you guys. Um, if you don't draft him and he's there, I can't guarantee I'm going to send free agents your way in the future. Calipari is freaking out. He's mid-30s, first-time head coach. John Nash is like, you got to calm down. It's all just a bluff. Now it's the morning of the draft. John Nash wakes up that morning knowing we're going to take Kobe Bryant. This guy's something special. Calipari and John Calipari in his contract, final personnel say over John Nash. So he had the final personnel say. He says, listen, guys, I've slept on it. I've thought about it. If Kerry Kittles is there at number eight, we're taking Kerry Kittles. If not, we're drafting Kobe Bryant. John Nash is like, oh, this is the worst. They draft um, they draft Kerry Kittles at number eight. Jerry West knows the next four teams. He works out a deal with Charlotte at 13. He knows the next four teams had no interest in Kobe. As soon as they draft Kobe, as soon as Charlotte drafts Kobe, they make the trade. Jerry West goes to Jerry Buss and says, I just got you the best player in this draft. And uh, all the blame, I would say, goes to John Calipari whipping out and taking Kobe Bryant. <laughs> well, people who follow me are, are no strangers to me criticizing Calipari for his coaching uh, everywhere he's been in college. So it makes sense to me that that would happen. By the way, to his credit, even though it wasn't him coaching ultimately, Kerry Kittles was a starter on uh, yeah. a couple finals teams uh, and was a very good fit in the Princeton offense that they ran under Lawrence Frank. Oh, no. Uh, wait, was it Lawrence Frank? Yeah, that was the coach was, I think, that. So the point being that, um, you know, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, it, to draft a guy there and have him be a starter and valuable and a guy who can score like that, you know, that's, that's not a loss. Can I ask you a question as a coach? Sure. Kobe Bryant is drafted by the Nets in 1996, all right? Calipari is a coach. These are the really bad Ed O'Bannon, Khalid Reeves, Nets. Does Kobe Bryant become an all-time great, or does he become a guy like he's the Calipari is like we're going to ride this guy rookie year. He shoots thirty-six percent, averages twenty a game, and his career is basically a guy, you know, a Carmelo type career. Or does he become the Kobe Bryant we know? You, you do you want me to get you want everyone to hate me? Is that what you want? Is that what you're asking I me? I think it's a fascinating. He is probably like uh, you know Steve Francis. Or, you know, that kind of guy, Stefan Marbury. I think that's the kind of guy he was. In fact, you know, uh, my mentor, another mentor of mine who I coached with in high school out in L.A., we would, we would watch these games. And, you know, Kobe would make – he was probably the worst – the best bad shot maker of all time. But the problem was is once he made one of those, you know he was going to take like five more that were terrible and he'd miss them. So uh, it was just my – you know, from a coach's perspective, it was mind-boggling. By the way, Iverson was very similar in that way too. Um, you know, Iverson, because he's in a smaller package, I guess, got more, um, you know, love from people and the respect, I guess. Although Kobe got that respect, too. Um, but I, I can just tell you those kind of inefficient players that take the bad shots. I mean, listen, we got a glimpse of what you're describing in what would have been in New Jersey uh, then, you know, after Shaq leaves in those two years where Kobe has the 80, 81 point game like that's what you get with Kobe, you know, whatever. And then it finally took Powell. I, I, we're waiting for your next book, right? About the next, uh, the the two championships with Powell. Um, you know, maybe not, maybe not me. Now you, all right, because that that was again, uh, you know, that was the reason. I mean, everybody needs help, right? Michael needed help. Shaq needed help. They all do. But um, you know, it was clear that Kobe, you know, it, it was never quite that level of that player. But I guess he behaved that way. And I think that's ultimately what you're saying is it was kind of rubbed everybody wrong. And, uh, and, and I think the biggest point of that was he just never seemed to understand that part, the self-realization. Is that safe to say? Yeah. And I also think, like, it's not a criticism to say that circumstances matter. Like, is Phil Jackson Phil Jackson if he's coaching the mid-'80s Sacramento Kings? No. You know? Shaq is a unique physical specimen, so obviously that. Is Scottie Pippen, if, he's never, if the Olden Polonies trade never happens and he's just a Sonic, is he Scottie Pippen? Probably not. You know, like, 
is Steve Francis, if he's in Kobe's shoes with the Lakers winning championships with Shaq, he probably is. You know, like there's like. Oh, there's no I got problem. one better for you. If Steve Kerr doesn't have him to wander onto the Bulls in 93, is he coaching the Warriors right now? Right. You know? Right. Crazy. So you're right. All those things are and – and by the way, on the flip side, yeah, there's so many uh, players littered uh, across the NBA who just never got in that right situation yeah. who probably would have been absolutely terrific. It really is uh, – you know, sometimes I don't know how that works. It's some, something maybe up there is controlling it or not. But, um, yeah, I think that all those things had to, you know, conspire in, in one, you know, random thing like the Charlotte trade where they were probably happy they got Vlade, you yeah, know, real. in exchange for a high schooler. That didn't work out, but you know, it's all right. I'm Vlade trying to remember Vlade. how that was. They got Anthony Mason. They had Vlade. You know, it was like a it was a weird team, right? And then obviously Vlade got back over to the Kings. Yeah, he went to the Kings, and then he ended with the Lakers. Actually, he came back. Yeah, yeah. I, every once in a while I do videos like that where I trace how the teams put, got put together. It, it's yeah. more interesting in the '80s because they, you know, they uh, the draft choices were just thrown around like candy yeah, versus yeah. now. But uh, yeah, it's always fascinating to see how that all works. But uh, uh, listen, I, I guess we can get your book anywhere, right? Isn't that what happens these days? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, any bookstores <laughs> or Amazon, all that stuff. Yeah. Okay, no oh. preference to where we buy the book, right? No, no, no. <laughs> all right. I'm happy you can get it from a library, you know, to just read it. It's good. Hey, no problem. And then, well, tell us how we can find you on Twitter, because I'm sure we want to keep up with what you're writing on next as well. Yeah, I'm uh, at Jeff Perlman on Twitter, and I have a website, jeffperlman.com, and Next book is a Bo Jackson biography I'm working on now. So. Oh, okay. Wow. By the way, a forgotten guy. Did you see that, that video that came out recently of him telling a player's son about him? About I, uh, his that was several years old, actually. But that oh, it was? was? A, yeah, it was. It was uh, Adam LaRosa's son on the White Sox. Yeah. There's, a, interestingly, a horrible basketball player, Bo Jackson. Um, does that make terrible. sense? Yeah, Terrible. Because, well, you know, because his attributes really quickly were like acceleration and balance. Strength. I mean, he, yeah, but I guess he doesn't, he didn't do anything. Well, no, baseball, yeah, baseball and basketball don't translate. I don't think football do either. Um, although uh, there are football players that tend to be pretty good basketball players. But uh, yeah, by the way, the biggest reason why I think for Bo is he was so big in his shoulders, like to shoot might have been hard. But nonetheless, yeah. uh, well, Jeff, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and, and giving us a, some, uh, a brief insight into a fantastically written book. Uh, I have to now go back and read some of the other ones because I, I'm excited to d delve back in. I haven't like read a book in a, like a while either, so certainly certainly a non-political book. So I'm really excited to get back into some sports uh, writing. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, and don't forget, sports fans, that B-Ball Breakdown. We're not a channel. We're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Jeff? I'm in. <laughs>